About a year ago, uh, I was actually here in Santa Fe um, visiting with the possibility of maybe becoming one of your pastors, and I got a call from a church, uh, from a member of my church in Texas, that uh, a dear uh, member there had, had died unexpectedly. He just walked out on his porch and, and fell over from a heart attack. And his name was Bill. He was a quiet, deeply faithful man. I knew him uh, but not as well as I would have liked to. I knew that he was retired from the Texas Parks and Wildlife Service. Um, but it was only after he died and uh, when I did his funeral that I found out that Bill was something of a revolutionary. Uh, it turns out that he was among the first people nationally in wildlife management to advocate for prescribed burning of the land uh, as not only a good thing, but a necessary thing. Prior to that, maybe some of you remember this, I mean, the Smokey the Bear era, when, you know, if there was a fire anywhere, there was just one thing to do, and that was put it out. Uh, but it turns out uh, that uh, this was, you know, not only a good thing for the land, but, but again, necessary. Uh, that, it, that burning of the land, ironically, performs a restorative function. Uh, improving the habitat, helping native plant growth, delivering soil nutrients, all those things. Now, we're at a place in the Bible where everything's been burned over for God's people. Most of them remain in exile. Most of them are still subjected to the Persian Empire. Uh, those who have returned uh, to the homeland, to the city of Jerusalem, have found a city in shambles, uh, with walls broken down, with the gates burned. And yet, when Nehemiah hears of it, even as God's dwelling isn't as it ought to be, and neither are his people as they ought to be, even as he grieves deeply, uh, he hopes intensely. He looks to the Lord as the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That was really at the heart of his prayer in chapter 1. That means that Nehemiah has a different perspective. He's not looking only to the conditions on the ground, but he looks primarily to the faithful and gracious character of the living God. Be because of him, burned over as everything is, there remains hope. The possibility, uh, not, even, not just the possibility, but the truth that there will be life yet. Now, Nehemiah is an administrator. He's a bureaucrat. He is about to be a project manager. He has no small amount of power in the Persian Empire, which I think makes what he does next, or maybe doesn't do, upon hearing the terrible news from Jerusalem, pretty striking. I mean, what do you expect, you know, successful, powerful, project management-oriented people to do when they get news like this? in the kind of position Nehemiah is in. You expect them to get busy fixing stuff, right? And, and I, I love being around people like that. I have greatly benefited as a pastor to have, to, to have in every church I've ever served in highly capable doers. It is such a mercy for people like me who are incompetent in so many areas um, to, to have the people of God around you who can pull stuff off, get stuff done. But I want to notice that for Nehemiah, before project management comes prayer, uh, really is that which is even more critical than getting stuff done, as that which is essential to even having a clear sense 
of what, if anything, ought to be done? And if so, how and when? For, for Nehemiah, devotion comes before the doing. And, and this, you know, I'm afraid can be a pretty rare quality among God's people in the church. Uh, years ago, I, I was at a board meeting for what was probably the largest parachurch ministry in our town at the time. And uh, we were talking about the usual stuff, about raising money and about the year to come and all the challenges that were before us. And in the midst of that conversation, one of the board members blurted out, he goes, well, we've got to do something. We can't just pray. And you're kind of like, whoa. An old professor of mine named Richard Loveless says that it's so often the case in church circles that the place of prayer has become limited and almost vestigial. He goes on to say the proportion of horizontal communication that goes on in the church in planning, arguing, expounding is overwhelmingly greater than that which is vertical in worship, thanksgiving, confession, intercession. Critically important committee meetings are begun and ended with formulary prayers, which are ritual obligations and not genuine expressions of dependence. When problems and arguments ensue, they are seldom resolved by further prayer, but are wrangled out on the battlefield of human discourse. The old midweek prayer meetings for revival have vanished from the programs of most churches or have been transformed into Bible studies ending with minimal prayer. But Nehemiah treats prayer as mission critical. And notice that not only does prayer take top priority, but his prayer has traction. He grips on to the scriptures as the true story, zeroing in on God's covenant promises, on God's holy and gracious character, on God and the Lord as Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and fearsome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who fear him and keep his commandments. That, that's defining everything. He grounds himself in God's covenant promises, even as he laments and mourns the reality of the situation. He prays with kingdom, covenantal respect, perspective from God's word. It's likely he remembered passages like Deuteronomy 4, that even as the Lord would come to scatter his people among the peoples in exile, reducing them, as Moses says, to a few survivors... He goes on to say that from that place of exile, you will search for the Lord your God and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in distress and all these things have happened to you and you will return to the Lord God in, later, in latter days and obey him. He will not leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant your, with your fathers that he swore to them by oath because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. Now, our story started with Nehemiah taking pains to tell us what time of year it was. He, he said it was Chislev, uh, basically around November or December. And he tells us the effect that the bad news about Jerusalem had on him, that it, that it caused him to weep and mourn for days and days. And we, we come to find out in the beginning of chapter 2 that it was more than uh, a few days. It was actually about four months. We're now in the month of Nisan and around March or April which means that he's been fasting and praying before the Lord for an extended period of time. We're also told it's the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king. So here at the beginning of chapter 2 with Nehemiah the cupbearer before the king, it's likely that he is there at a great occasion, 
a great party, the 20th anniversary of the reign of the great king. And when it comes to parties, nobody partied like the Persians. Uh, the first chapter of Esther describes a party in which the Persian king Ahasuerus had a party in which he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp and greatness for 180 days. Six-month party in honor of the king. And of course, central to the life of a Persian party, probably central to the life of a Santa Fe party, is the wine. And, uh, you know, which meant that Nehemiah's role was, was completely critical to having a great celebration. Um, and since he was in charge of the wine for the king, he was in charge of the wine for the whole gathering, and there would have been some ceremony where he would have uh, gone to the king first to serve him the wine to get the party going, right? And so he comes in, ready for this great celebration, uh, except he is visibly depressed. Uh, and this is, a, this is a big deal. It's a big deal not just for Nehemiah. It's a big deal for everything. Nehemiah actually says in all his days of serving the king, he had never before been sad in his presence. Now, it was expected, of course, that if you're in the royal glory and splendor and pomp of the greatness of the king, that for you would be the ultimate. It would be the ultimate joy. Uh, any failure to be joyous and happy in the presence of the king could be considered treacherous, right? So, Here's Nehemiah. Uh, the praying and the fasting has had an effect on his personality. Nehemiah cannot fake happy, uh, regardless of whose presence he's in. And the king notices him, and he asks him, why are you so depressed? Uh, there, there's clearly personal concern here for him. He asks not only if he's sick, but he, he asks him, if you can imagine, have you got sadness of heart? And all this attention from the king makes Nehemiah very afraid. Uh, we don't know exactly why he's afraid. It's certainly likely that because he's distracting from what should be a happy party, uh, that's a fearsome thing. But, but I think it's, it's maybe something even bigger going on, and that that is that the critical moment that he's been praying about all this time has finally come. Uh, that, that the time to speak to the king about what is troubling him and to ask this king for help has arrived. And, and to, you know, to kind of get your head around the fearsomeness of the moment, it's vital you know a little bit of history. Nehemiah knew that there had been a previously thwarted, failed attempt to, be, to rebuild Jerusalem, uh, which was put to a stop by this very king. Uh, he allowed a temple to be rebuilt by Ezra, but he prohibited the rebuilding of the city because Jerusalem, as the leaders of the surrounding provinces reported to the king, was a wicked and rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, with sedition stirred up within it from of old. So you better believe Nehemiah was afraid to not only bring up business at a party, but also to ask this king for help in repairing the rebellious city by overturning his old decree. And yet, so when Nehemiah explains the cause of his depression, he's very diplomatic. Wisely, uh, this is a good workplace practice, first praise the boss. May he live forever. May you live forever, king. And he goes on to explain that the city, the place of my father's grave, graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, interestingly, nowhere in Nehemiah's explanation do you hear the word Jerusalem. 
Of course, the king would have known he was talking about Jerusalem, but he's being very, Nehemiah is being very diplomatic. He's appealing on a couple of important fronts. He's appealing in terms of personal relationship. He's also appealing to the power of the king. He, for Nehemiah to refer to that place as the place of the graves of his father would have likely plucked the heartstrings of the king. It would have been an important area of solidarity for them. The Persians uh, treated the dead with great reverence. They had great rituals and festivals uh, surrounding, honoring those who had died. But also he appeals to his power. He knows that any city without, in his realm without walls was useless, so it, it represented a problem for the king's reputation for his power. But all the same, Artaxerxes can see Nehemiah is kind of dancing around things. He's using this diplomatic language, so he basically says, look, out with it. What do you want? Tell me. And it's as critical a moment as there has ever been. Nehemiah seizes it. Uh, and interestingly, if you notice in verse 4, he seizes it not by answering Artaxerxes, not, not yet anyway, but, but really in the, in the kind of the briefest moment, in, in, a, in a pause, no one knows exactly how long, maybe a breath or two, Nehemiah once again prays. He prayed to the God of heaven, he says. Now, I just want to think about that for a second and appreciate the potency of what Nehemiah does there. Uh, Nehemiah is in the presence of arguably the most powerful man on the planet. Uh, not only that, he has his ear. Not only that, he has his favor. The king himself has teed it all up for Nehemiah. Just tell me what you're asking for me, and I will, the implication is, give it to you. And yet, it's in that exact moment that Nehemiah remembers who the real king is and appeals to him. He knows even at, this very, at, the, at the center of global power that the king he's speaking to is subject to an even greater king, that the will of that king is subservient to the God of heaven. Nehemiah knows where the real power and the real favor lies, so he prays to his God and king momentarily, inwardly, maybe with not much more than groanings too deep for words, maybe with my favorite prayer, Jesus, help. Lord, help me. And with that, he asked the king for a few things. He asked him to send him to Judah to rebuild the city. Uh, the king wants to know how long Nehemiah would be gone. He probably values this man very much, and he wants to know when he plans to return. And, but he respects Nehemiah enough to say it's for you to decide. And it's not stated here, but we know from chapter 5 he was there for 12 years. And Nehemiah goes on to make a couple more requests. First, he asks for letters of introduction to the governors of the provinces beyond the river. He's, he's essentially asking Artaxerxes for safe passage. Uh, he is on a political mission, basically, and that can elicit suspicion, maybe even hostility, from the provincial officials along the way if he doesn't have the king's endorsement. So he asks for safe transit, and he asks for timber. Uh, he wants uh, another letter for, to the king's forester, a Jewish name, Asaph, uh, guaranteeing that timber would be provided for the rebuilding of the city and for his own house. So Artaxerxes agrees, and he actually gives him more than he asked for. He provides him a military escort as well. And with that, Nehemiah reports that he got everything he asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. God answered his prayer. 
But he also got something else thrown in for good measure, and this is instructive uh, when uh, we think about our answered prayers, uh, is that he also got troubles. The troubles don't go away. Uh, Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem, and the neighbors don't like it. Uh, There's opposition to the rebuilding of the city. Uh, There's already, it seems, resentment that the Jews have rebuilt the temple. Um, And that is not only, that resentment uh, and opposition has not only gone away, it seems to have grown. Uh, There are some characters mentioned here, Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, uh, Geshem the Arab. They heard of what Nehemiah was up to, and they were not happy in the least. So when he gets there, he inspects the city. He takes three days to assess everything on the ground. He, uh, he carries it out at night, um, accompanied by a few men who know the city really well. He carries all this out in the dark because he knows he has those within God's people uh, who he can't trust and those outside of God's people whom he can't trust. He has a vision, but he still wants to assess exactly what's going on. And in assessing the city, it's really bad. It is a shambles. Um, the sense here... As he describes it, you can't, he can't even walk his donkey around. He's got to, there's so much building material just piled on top of each other uh, that it is a complete mess. And after this inspection was complete, probably the following morning, uh, Nehemiah calls the people together. And he made the purpose of his presence there public. He says, I am here to rebuild the walls to essentially rebuild the city, make it a viable, thriving, working city again. And, and you know, it's not just what he says to the people, but, but kind of the way he puts it that I think is so striking. It's so odd even. It's, this is not the way you'd expect an Artaxerxes-appointed, military-escorted governor of Judah to, to speak uh, and lay out his plans. Uh, first of all, and this is so unlike, you know, a politician... He tells them the truth. He tells them the unvarnished truth, the ugly truth. He goes, things, the city is broken down. Uh, All of us are in great danger. Uh, The translation I read from is, he says, you see the trouble we're in, but but actually it's something more like you see the great evil that has fallen upon us. What's also striking is Nehemiah's concern not only for the welfare of the city, but, but he has a great concern for the glory of God. The destruction is one thing, but he's just as concerned about kind of the derision that's fallen upon God's people. You know, cities without walls were no cities at all, and everyone knew this was the city of of those who worshipped Yahweh, the city of the Jews, so its ruin really represented something important, you know, how it looked. You know, years ago, I was in a session meeting. This was when I was a pastor um, in the Northeast, and... uh, you know, we, we, we had our city, our church was right there in a densely populated city with a lot of foot traffic, and we thought, you know, we want to do some landscaping to make it just look better. And you can imagine how those conversations go. We hired the, you know, got a bid from a landscaper, and we're going to do all this stuff, and, you know, we present the amount of money it was going to cost, and, you know, a couple elders were like, man, I've got a wheelbarrow, and we can go down to Lowe's and haul the stuff out of here and get the pots and do it ourselves. What are we doing, you know? And uh, one of the other pastors there said something that's really kind of stuck with me. He just said, he goes, brother, when the kingdom of God shows up to town, things ought to look good, really good. You know, there's a sense of representing something, the glory of God. The most striking of all is what Nehemiah doesn't say. 
He, he, he doesn't show up and say, all right, I am the governor of Judah, appointed by King Artaxerxes. I am here with timber from the king's forest. I have been tasked with ensuring that this project of rebuilding will be carried out, and you all are going to get in on it with me. He, he's not bossy at all. He speaks actually as a, as a fellow citizen, as someone who's got a stake in the life of the city he's serving. He, he doesn't stand apart from that. He doesn't stand apart from the city's troubles. He's got solidarity with the city, with its people. He, notice he says, you see the trouble we're in. We're all in trouble here. And he doesn't separate himself from the work, from the rebuilding of the city. He, he says, come, let us rebuild. Let's do this together. And I think it's legitimate to ask, why is he this way? Nehemiah actually explains why he's this way. He tells them that the hand of my God has been upon me for good. He, he describes his relationship with the Lord as personal, not just the hand of God. The hand of my God has been upon me. And he, and he describes it in terms of grace. Uh, the hand of God can certainly be upon you uh, in ways that don't work to the good. But he says, the hand of my God has been upon me for good. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a recipient of grace. None of this, by the way, negates his honor for the king. He goes on to say, after, the, after he says that the, Lord was, the hand of the Lord was upon him for good, that also the words that the king had spoken to me give me this authority. So Nehemiah is a politician with, with a greater purpose guided by God's word, undergirded by his great and gracious kingdom purpose, a purpose the Lord is allowing him to carry out with the permission of the king to rebuild the walls. He's well aware of God's favor on him, that in that posture will always make you both incredibly humble and incredibly bold. With that, the people respond. They say, let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. And with those intentions made public, with the work officially inaugurated, again, something else happens. Opposition to the good work. Opposition to God's purposes immediately flare up. You know, Martin Luther wisely said that wherever the Lord builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. And here it is. It's interesting to see the form this opposition takes. It comes at first as scorn and ridicule. They don't really zero in on the rebuilding project itself, they, they zero in on their religious beliefs. You know, they, they ask, you know, what, what is this thing you're doing? What do you, it's like, who, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? Why put all this energy and effort into this dusty, destroyed little empire outpost? Of all the things you could be investing in, why this? It wasn't much to begin with. It won't be much when you're done. Surely you could put your time and talent and treasure and your money and your muscle behind something a little more worthy. But they don't leave it there. They follow up with basically a threat. They ask, are you rebelling against the king? Of course, this, you know, had some potency. Uh, this was the very argument used against Ezra to pursue this very same king, Artaxerxes, to stop rebuilding the wall before. So they dredge this up. It, it's, they they want to dishearten them. They want to get them insecure and doubtful. They want to remind them of past failure. And then it comes time for Nehemiah to answer. Um, and I don't know about you, if I was making this into a blockbuster, you know, film, um, my next scene would look something like this. 
Nehemiah would, you know, reach into his pouch or whatever and get one of those letters the king gave him and show them the royal seal and stick it in their face and say, funny you should mention the king because I've just stood in the court of Artaxerxes. He and I had a personal conversation. He actually is very sympathetic to me. He asked me if I had sadness of heart. He spoke to me personally, and, and he asked me, what do you need? And, and I told him what I needed, and he furnished me lavishly with everything I need to do this. I have a royal appointment. I have royal permission. I've been given royal pr provisions. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. But in fact, Nehemiah does tell them that he has been sent and provisioned and been in the presence of the king, but not that king. Instead, he tells them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This place of ruin, a place burned over, looking like there could never be life there ever again, will be raised up, not by Artaxerxes, not by Nehemiah, by the God of heaven. Nehemiah knows and wants everyone else to know that this is bigger than a civic engineering project because of the scope of God's promises to save and secure a people for himself, a promise which transcends the rebuilding of walls of Jerusalem. When Nehemiah received the news from Hanani that God's people were in great trouble and shame and that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire, he wept and mourned and fasted and prayed to the Lord for months. But here's what's critical. He didn't fall to pieces. He flew to the promises of God. He clung to the covenant and he prayed to the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He took to the rebuilding of the city, knowing it was more than just a building project, but that it was connected to the covenant promise made to its founder, King David. That when David's days were done and when he was lying in the grave, as Nehemiah referred to before, you know, he's one of those who lies in the graves of his father, that the Lord will raise up offspring after him who shall come from his own body so that what? His kingdom will be established. And he shall, what, build a house for my name and establish the throne of that kingdom forever. The conquest of the city and its destruction wasn't the end of the story because God's covenant assured his people that this city was more than a city. It was, in essence, a sacrament. It, it was that which pointed to and signified the greater city that the Lord was building. The greater kingdom that he would establish, ruled forever by a greater and more gracious and eternal king than Artaxerxes or, any, or King David or anyone else could ever be. Nehemiah would have remembered that Isaiah prophesied that God's city will come to be inhabited and that the Lord himself will raise up her ruins. He would have remembered that God spoke of his love for that city, uh, likening it to the love of a husband for his bride. He would have remembered that Jeremiah prophesied of the city's destruction, but also of its restoration, so that even though the city would come to be desolate, the time would come when the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, and the voices of those who sing 
as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, will once again ring in God's city. That the day is coming when the Lord will fulfill his promise he made to the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, causing a righteous branch to spring up for David, who will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And the name of that place, Jeremiah says, will be called the Lord is our righteousness. This is the place Ezekiel envisioned as a waste place that would be rebuilt and become like Eden. So that even after David is long gone, the truer and greater David, the Lord's servant will be king over God's people and he will be to them as one shepherd in the From the temple of that city will flow living waters that will go out into all the world and heal the nations. It's a city, but it's a sacrament. So the Lord's saving promise makes what Nehemiah and God's people are up to something greater than a construction project. It is, in fact, a critical chapter in the fulfillment of God's covenant promise, which culminates in the coming of the greater David reigning over a truer and greater and heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God in which his people dwell forever, securely. And of course, in due time, the promise comes to fruition. Around 450 years later, what is looked forward to comes about. In Luke 2, there's mention of a woman who lived in this very city that Nehemiah and the others are raising up. And Luke reports that she spent all of her time at the very center of the city, that she never left the temple, that she dedicated herself to worship and prayer and fasting day and night, that she set her hope, as Nehemiah had, on God's covenant faithfulness. Her name was Anna. And it came about when Jesus' parents came to present him in the temple that her prayer and fasting stopped and turned to praise and thanksgiving. In seeing Jesus, she praised God for answering her prayers. She thanked God to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In Jesus, the long-promised Savior had come, the one who came to finally and fully rebuild the ruins of a wrecked humanity, that a new and everlasting city would be raised up And with it, a new and redeemed humanity cleansed from their sin with God's reign eternally inaugurated and advancing, establishing a new and living way to God by becoming a ruin for us. So that from Jesus as the truer and greater temple, living water would flow out into all the world for our cleansing and for our life and for our hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we live in days that are, you know, bear some echoes of what's going on in Jerusalem. A lot of stuff is broken, burned over. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine, you know, how, how some of these things will be rebuilt. So, Lord, we're grateful that the story as it plays out, you know, um, in the world is not... Um, the true story. It's part of what you're doing, but we know the end. We know that even as there are ruins, because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is hope and life. And so, Lord, we pray along with Nehemiah that we would be those who would look to you, 
who would remember your covenant faithfulness, who would look to your story as our own, that we would, uh, following you, depending upon you, Lord Jesus, rise up and build, that we would, that our hands would be strengthened for the good work, that our hope would be in you. Pray that you would use this word in our lives, that you would prompt us to pray, to not lose sight of the, of the city that we are building, to remember where our life is, and to hope in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.